Hi there, this is the Not The Top 20 podcast with Ali Maxwell, with George Ellick. We are sponsored by Betfair. We love the EFL, the Championship League 1 and League 2, and that's what we talk about. And it's with great pleasure that we do so this week because... It's a packed, packed show. League One final day to break down. League One playoffs to preview. Sandwiched between a quick breakdown of the Championship and League Two weekend that was ahead of their own final days this coming weekend. A packed show, George Ellick. You know what else is going to be a packed show? Not the top 20 live at the Leicester Square Theatre on the 19th of May. Two and a half weeks away. And that's why you should buy your ticket now. It's because it's going to be a packed show. And if you leave it too late you might miss out on seeing us talking about football on a stage with maybe some other people on the stage too, possibly. Wow, we've been working hard, haven't we, on that front? We've been putting in calls. We we know that we can provide some insight and some entertainment, but we want some help on that front. So we're still waiting to hear back from some... Hold on. What's this? I've never seen this on Skype before. Someone's trying to hijack our recording. Someone's try, like hacking in. Who is that? Hold on, I recognise that guy. George, hold on. Someone's hacked our recording. He's trying to say something. Let's just hear him out. Hi, guys. This is Jed Wallace. I'm looking forward to joining the boys live on the 19th of May at the Not The Top 20 live show. Ho, ho, ho. How about that then? Yes. Jedly Wallace. As regular listeners to the show, no, Jed's not just a championship footballer, but someone who is very, very eloquent and very good at, at kind of delivering his opinions on the championship as well. So um, it's a massive coup, I would say, isn't it? It's a huge coup. If you're not going to come to watch us, come to watch Jed. Also, so much talk about Jed Wallace's future for so long now, and and we know the answer. He is joining Not The Top 20 Live at the Leicester Square Theatre on Thursday, the 19th of May. He will be joining uh, George and I and maybe some other friends on stage. And you can join us too. Please head to the Leicester Square Theatre website. You can follow the link in the description of this podcast. We've got at least one more top, top, top tier guest to confirm. Just trust us on that front. And please, 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 if you can, buy a ticket and come and join the party. We're soon to celebrate six years of Not The Top 20 pod. It's been an incredible journey for us. Some of you have been on it for the whole six years. Some of you for less than that. Some of you for only a few weeks or months. It doesn't matter to us. But it'd be amazing if you could join us uh, and celebrate that with us. And, and we promise, you know, it's not going to be a self-indulgent talking about not the top 20. This isn't going to be a comedy night either. This is going to be serious insight, we hope, into EFL football. All three leagues from our guests, of course, uh, and us trying to give some ourselves. So there's the plug. There's only two and a half weeks to go. Clear the decks for Thursday the 19th of May. Get yourself to Leicester Square and join us at Not The Top 20 Live. OK, time for a big episode talking about the weekend that was and the week to come. A pretty swift segment on the championship, I would suggest, George, because again, Fulham have had their game moved, which means again they're playing after we talk and they're playing Luton Town, who are a big part of the playoff picture. So we don't have the full picture. The main storylines are in the championship. Uh, the battle for second place and the battle for sixth place, fifth and sixth place. Who's to say? Um, in terms of that second auto spot, it's like a it's like a sort of nature film at the moment. It's, it's Attenborough-esque. One predator chasing another animal that's also kind of a predator, but in this case is, is being preyed, and that's Bournemouth. And they've had a few moments where the hunted Bournemouth have looked pretty vulnerable, have looked like Forrest might catch them. A couple of weeks ago, they hadn't won in three. Then they went to Cov and smashed it, smashed out a 3-0 win. 
got away from Forest, it seemed. And then they went into the last weekend off the back of two draws in a row. Forest had won three on the spin. Bournemouth stood up to the pressure once more. They did their bit, George, going to Ewood Park and winning 3-0 against Blackburn. Yeah, I think this went basically exactly as anyone who's seen much of these two sides play would expect it to go um, with it being a pretty open game, a pretty end-to-end game, maybe not a great deal between the two sides in terms of the actual, the way the game went. But with Blackburn, as has been the case throughout 2022, um, being wasteful with their opportunities in front of goal and Bournemouth being very clinical with theirs. And and that is why they've won 3-0. I know this isn't the first time we've said this about Bournemouth recently. You mentioned there the 3-0 win against Coventry. This was pretty similar, basically, uh, although I, I mean, Bournemouth were maybe a little bit better on the day on Saturday than they were against Cov. Um, but again, you know, it's a scoreline that you know, I, I'm loath to say it flatters them um, because they're a good value for it in the end. But quite clearly, especially at 0-0 and 1-0, Blackburn has plenty of opportunities to level the game and it would have looked very different had they taken them. Um, Travers made a couple of good saves. Diaz hit the woodwork from close range as well. And and that was kind of the story of it. And that's the end of, of Blackburn's challenge for a playoff place. Um, that's the end of, of Tony Mowbray's uh, reign. Um, you know, obviously he'll be in charge on Saturday, but he, he looks set to be leaving Blackburn as well. And for Bournemouth, it's another positive result. But again, if I was a Forest fan or Steve Cooper and watching this game back, I would see plenty of reasons to be pretty positive about Tuesday because Bournemouth continue to be a side who their decent defensive record is mainly down to um, wasteful finishing and good goalkeeping rather than stifling the opposition from creating chances. And for a team in Forest who, regardless of their of their injury issues, still seem to be able to carve teams open at will. Um, I mean, I am I am so excited about Tuesday. I was I was with a couple of friends last night who are football fans but but aren't necessarily EFL fans. And I was like, if you're ever going to watch an EFL game, I don't forget the playoff finals for now. If you're ever going to watch a, a, an EFL game in the league, Tuesday night is it, because it's the closest we're ever going to get to having almost a playoff final in the regular season. It is between two sides with so much attacking talent and so much attacking intent with everything out on the line as well. It's going to be incredible. I cannot wait. Some excellent attacking execution from from Bournemouth, Billing and Solanke in particular. And I think my main takeaway from this and from Bournemouth right now is I think I probably... I understand what you're saying. I'm probably keen to give them a little more credit just in terms of getting over the line at this stage of the season that the psychology of these games can cripple teams and they have not been crippled by it. Uh, Albeit, I take your point in terms of the the balance of play, maybe not looking like a 3-0 game in either this win or the Blackburn win. But frankly, they have got players who are playing at the very top uh, of, of this league in Solanke and in Billing combining in particular. And then, you know, it's not that many months ago that everyone was getting very excited about their ambitious deadline day acquisitions and you and I were like well but they can't all play and we're a bit worried this might disrupt the core group that had had Bournemouth so far clear at the start of the season don't forget it's it's only Bournemouth's first what 18 games that has them in this top two it's not what's happened since then and so you look at the team that Parker has, has kind of settled on to take them over the line and aside from Nat Phillips who's taken the place of Gary Cahill it's the old boys. It's Zamura and Anthony down the left, very much the young boys, but the, the boys from the start of the season. It's Smith and Christie down the right side. It's Billing uh, getting forward and combining with Solanke. Lerma breaking ankles in midfield. And, and obviously Lewis Cook was injured at the start of the season, but but you know he was already there. Uh, only Phillips from those January signings has played more than 50% of minutes available since they all joined, which um, I, 
I mean, it's very, very after timing to say this was predictable. So I'm not going to say that. But it is interesting. It is interesting. Um, uh, before we get on to Forest and Tuesday, just uh, let's discuss Tony Mowbray's uh, departure from Blackburn. It hasn't even been announced yet, but... You know, Mowbray's kind of taken matters into his own hands in, in lieu of, of any sort of leadership or or communication coming from the club itself. Pre-match in the press conference, he'd spoken about how he hadn't even spoken about contract talks and that obviously made it look like he was he was leaving. He was asked after the game, are you leaving? And he said, well, I think it looks pretty clear by now. Now, outwardly and emotionally, he seems, George, almost a little relieved, uh, uh, not happy, but kind of... Um, he's spoken about spending more time with his family and and there's a part of me that thinks if he's not able or willing to give it 100% or as much as he has done in the previous five years, then that's not ideal and, and maybe this is a good time for everyone to be parting ways. But there's also some residual disappointment with the way that this has been handled uh, and amongst the fan base, quite a lively discussion going on about his tenure, about whether this is right or wrong and I'm keen to get your take as well. Yeah, it, you know, I've been... Um, a staunch supporter of Tony Mowbray over the last couple of seasons. Um, and, you know, I don't necessarily disagree with the decision um, for him to, to to not offer him a contract. I think he's done a very good job uh, over the last five years. Um, the weird way that Blackburn seasons pan out under him uh, in terms of having very strong starts and then really fading away in the second half of campaigns uh, is kind of beyond explanation, especially when you look at the underlying data, and that suggests that there hasn't been a, a drop off at all in terms of actual performances. It's just a weird quirk where, where suddenly the ball stopped going in the back of the net in the second half of the season. Um, but having said that, and you also, it's, it's pretty. I mean, I, I can't think of any other manager, whether by design or by fluke, who's overseen three seasons with completely different styles of play over the course of three seasons. Uh, you know, we had three seasons ago when they were fairly, you know, uh, uh, there wasn't really much of a, of a of a style of play to kind of to really speak of. Um, it was basically about getting the ball into Dak as early as possible. Uh, and then last season, they were the possession-heavy um, pitch as big as possible. Yeah, I mean, side uh, with Armstrong in it. And then this season, it was all change again, you know, looking to, to press, uh, not really looking to, to retain possession of the ball for long periods of time, getting the ball into, again, ball carriers. So I, I don't know if that's a strength or not. I don't know if that is Mowbray being told how to um, how to set the team up by those above him before the season. We don't know. Um, I think he's proven himself to be a pretty capable coach and it's not many coaches who can effectively get a team playing pretty well in, in different styles. We always associate certain managers with our own style of play. And with Mowbray, it seems like he can mix it up um, season to season, which is which is strange. And maybe you know they may not have had the players to do it, but you have to think that possibly if they continued with what the you know with the game plan set out last season, maybe it would have worked better. But then I guess, you know, the first half of the campaign with, with Britton Diaz playing up front rather than Armstrong, you look at the um, the goals he scored and the way that he played, I, I guess it was justified. Um, the key for me now you know, we've seen the Athletic are reporting this morning that um, head of athletic performance, who you know I assume is a fairly um, prominent figure at Blackburn, is moving on to Newcastle. It feels like there's going to be a bit of an exodus of staff over the coming weeks. Um, uh, I don't. I mean, given the way that they have um, used the loan market in recent seasons, given um, uh, the, the recruitment has been fairly good as well, despite the fact that pre Mowbray the Venki era um was just you know pretty miserable on the pitch 
uh, the way that things have, have gone in recent seasons gives me some hope that they'll get the, the next appointment right, that things are kind of being laid down in the, in the right foundation. But I certainly wouldn't expect a run-of-the-mill manager to come in and necessarily achieve more with, with the current squad at his disposal. I don't think this is a top six squad in my view, and I'm sure the budget isn't top six either. The Venkis have a lot to thank Tony Mowbray for. I genuinely believe that their repaired reputation over the last five years is mostly down to him. Now, a lot goes into decision-making at football clubs. It does look like off the field they have calmed down somewhat and they have made some slightly more um, joined-up thinking decisions, shall we say. But overall, the main reason why the Venkis have stopped being talked about as one of the worst ownership groups in English football, which is what they were talked about, they were a laughing stock for a while, weren't they? is because they appointed Tony Mowbray. And I think they got lucky appointing Tony Mowbray because you look at who they'd appointed previously and my suggestion is that they sort of hit gold without necessarily um, meaning to. So yeah, I have a lot of admiration for him and the job that he's done, the football played, the players developed. Um, as you say, he, he it is a trend that his teams have fallen away towards the end of the season. Now, whether that's a trend that means that will happen forever, every single season that Tony Mowbray manages, probably not. Um, but it is hard to put your your finger on, and it's it's also tough to deny. and And that means you often head into the summer feeling like you could have done more, even though it's his own high standards and, and his own success that got you in the in in there in the first place. So, really, really tough one. Uh, as you say, a lot of players out of contract: Rothwell, Lenahan, Nyambe expected to leave. Four loanees, of course, of differing importance as well. It's a big summer of recruitment for Rovers as it is for, for most teams. You know, this summer, there must be more or a higher percentage of players out of contract than any summer ever. It's a kind of a collateral from from COVID and, and those contracts n- not being able to be renewed and, and players betting on themselves and, and teams are going to have to have some good summers uh, and, and this is one of them. So if their next hire is or has as positive an impact on the club as Mowbray has, they will be in great shape in one, two, three years. But there's no guarantee in that, and I'm not sure I'd have a huge amount of faith in them to do so. Uh, let's go back to, to this race for second. Forest, one of the most terrifying predators around, George, because they just keep winning. They thrashed Swansea 5-1 on Saturday. In doing so, set a record in English football this season. The most shots on target in a single game in the Premier League or EFL this season with 17 a hell of a performance from Swansea keeper Fisher. Let's be clear here. Uh, the previous joint holders were Liverpool and Man City, who both took 15 shots, both against Leeds, lol. Um, uh, let's talk about Sam Surridge, who was Forrest's third-choice striker, if not for the injury to Keenan Davis and Lewis Graben. It's hard to imagine Surridge really playing any meaningful minutes at this time other than off the bench when, when victories had been secured or were being sought. And instead, he heads into the playoffs uh, or into the Premier League as, as one of the most confident strikers in the league at the moment. He scored a hat-trick here. And you know I hate this phrase. He could have had five or six. And I'm going to detail why that is. I'm not just going to flippantly say it. After four minutes, good save from Fisher from a Surridge effort. After 10 minutes, he had a one-on-one, ball over the top, bouncing ball. He went for a lob. It was a weak effort caught by Fisher. But that was a huge chance. 41 minutes, a booming header from a set piece, tipped onto the post by Fisher, incredible save. And in first half injury time, it was cut back to Surridge, eight yards out, clear shot at goal, left foot wide of the post. That's four opportunities before he even scored one. And then he scored a hat-trick from that point. 
Um, that doesn't include between his second and third goals, he had a ball rolled across him. Uh, and from five yards, he hit it straight at the keeper. As you said yourself, it doesn't seem to matter how many heads you cut off here, how many injuries they sustain. Forrest just create chances in a ton of different ways. I guess my main question to you is, because that's the match done there, they, they were excellent, they sliced Swansea apart. What do you expect to happen on Tuesday night? I don't know. I mean, I think it'll be um, open. Um, I can't see why both teams won't go for it. And, and Forrest certainly know that their strength lies in, in, in creating chances. And that's what they're able to do. It, it is amazing. You know, I, when Keenan Davis and, um, and Lewis Graben were ruled out, it, it felt like such a significant blow to Forrest and what they were doing. And you look as well, I mean, before this game on Saturday, there was talk that Surridge might be out injured. There was talk that Colback might be out as well. Um, and Zinkanagel too. All three of them were fit. All three were substituted kind of as soon as the the, the game was was safe. Um, but you looked at the bench and who they had to come in. And you know you had Alex Mighton who did come on and score a goal, but he's been, um, you know, he he's barely played a part in this good run under Steve Cooper for for the majority of the season. There isn't much depth there at all, and it just doesn't seem to matter. Clearly, having a Premier League quality right wing back or right back in Jed Spence is massive. You know, he is someone who it doesn't seem to matter who they're playing against. Spence is, is consistently one of, if not the best player on the pitch and having a Premier League quality forward in Brendan Johnson, who is exactly the same and having those two combining down the right-hand side or just, you know, having the impact they have on games immediately puts the opposition on the back foot. Um, Bournemouth have had their own issues at left back this season. Um, Zamira, of course, is, is now back, but uh, I'd fancy Spence, Spence's chances to get at him. If I was to make a prediction now, it would be that Bournemouth won't win. That's not necessarily to say that, that Forrest um, will, but I think <clears throat> a draw for Bournemouth at least keeps everything in their own hands and keeps Forrest at arm's length going into the final day of the season. And that could creep into things. So... Um, I, I mean, as I said before, I think it's going to be an unbelievable occasion and an incredible game between two sides who we know um, will have their attacking intent at the forefront. Um, and, and the prize is, is just so massive. And unlike, you know, that's the key thing here, unlike playoff finals, which can often be so disappointing because the stakes are so high and they go into the game at nil-nil with, with no previous um, standing. Here, there's so much around the game that makes it more exciting. The fact that if Forest win, they go into final day level on points with, on better goal difference. The fact that if Bournemouth win, they can just get rid of final day and go up on on, on the day, and that even a draw would keep um, Forest with a chance of closing them down on final day. It, it it lends itself to it being a much more exciting game than a cagey playoff final where both teams are, are basically scared to lose. I think Forest win. I think Forest win. I, I think they are a better side, and and not only by a little bit. I think all round. In all areas, dare I say it, I think they are currently a much better team than Bournemouth. And I, I see nothing to suggest that they might suddenly drop their standards because they haven't for three months. Whereas Bournemouth, yes, we've seen them stand up to pressure, as I keep saying, with these away wins at, at Coventry and then on the weekend at Blackburn. But they have dipped their standards. They are still having the odd game where something doesn't go right. You know, that Swansea 3 all last midweek, great example. Yes, they came back roaring back. That was very, very impressive. But to be 3-0 down, wow. Okay, that's the sort of thing that Forrest aren't showing at the moment. Um, 
I'm happy to put my neck on the line here. Uh, there's every chance I could be wrong. Solanke is so good. I do think Forrest's defence could stand up to him a hell of a lot better than Coventry's and Blackburn's have. Most other defences in the league have struggled with Solanke and Billing. Uh, and Anthony off the left and Christie off the right. I think Forrest are in a good spot here and I think they will win, which would put them in prime position uh, on the weekend. So there you go. That's my prediction. The good news is, George, if they don't, if Bournemouth win and they secure their promotion, then their fans won't be listening to this pod anymore. So I won't have to handle them slagging me off for years. Um, so let's see. As you say, it's as good as it gets. Make sure you clear the decks Tuesday night, 7 p.m. kickoff. Do not miss the first half because you think it's 7.45. 7 p.m. kickoff. Live on Sky Sports, Forest against Bournemouth. It's as exciting as it gets. Um, and yeah, can't wait for it. Coventry 1, Huddersfield 2 was a game that happened. Huddersfield uh, have punched their playoff ticket, of course, already. And they've maintained their high standards. And yeah, they were helped by some poor Coventry finishing here. Um, real theme of Cobb's season. Uh, and some very good goalkeeping from from Nichols, who's the goalkeeper of the season in the championship. And just sort of embodies their, their amazing summer of recruitment. Go back and look at who Huddersfield signed, how much money they spent or didn't spend, and try and work out how much money has been wasted. Every summer, teams buy players, they drop wages on them, sometimes they drop a fee, and when you look back a year later, you're like, you know, obviously understanding that recruitment will never be perfect, but you can say like, oh, you've, you've actually had to lay down quite a lot of cash there on players that simply haven't contributed to this football team this year. Well, Huddersfield's recruitment stands up very, very well. Almost all of those signings contributing to what is an excellent team unit. Um, and and Corbrand's going to have them bang up for the playoffs, there's no doubt. Toffolo with a great goal kind of sums things up, really. You know, a player who was known as a, a lively championship fullback, wingback, worked his way up, having been released by Norwich with Lincoln, now with Huddersfield. Um, and now looks like a, one of the better fullbacks, wingbacks in the division. And I think a big part of that comes down to Corbrand. When you set up your team so well, when everyone understands their roles so well, and when the tactics are so spot on, that as a collective, you end up looking like a strong team. Individual players benefit as well, and they change their own narrative. They change their own placement in people's eyes in the game, and that's so, so valuable. So um, really looking forward to them heading into the playoffs. We don't think they're going to do the miracle, which would be an 18-goal swing or something like that. Uh, okay, sixth spot is interesting. And Sheffield United stood up to... Well, they're the ones to be shot at, aren't they? They went to QPR on, on Friday night, George. Um, I want to start with a quick chat about Warburton because then I want to talk about Blades and, and Borough together. Warburton won't be QPR manager next season. Feels like an odd situation to have Warburton and Mowbray both leaving, um, just being their contracts finished, not being renewed. It feels like quite a strange, unusual situation for two teams between 7th and 12th. Um, what do you think about Warburton leaving QPR? It's weird because there are definitely parallels in terms of the jobs that they've done, um, especially this season. And I guess there are kind of parallels in terms of the the managers they are as well. Very different backgrounds in terms of, of, of what they were, you know, with uh, Warburton being a, a city slicker uh, and Tony Mowbray being, a, you know, a, a hard-nosed defender. Um, but in terms of, of their profile, you know, two guys who aren't necessarily um, the younger model of coach, but I would argue in terms of their actual style are, are, are more similar to it than their profile would suggest, both in terms of their innovation, um, the way they play, the, the way that they invest in youth and, and look to play youth and, and encourage a freedom on the pitch um, that maybe doesn't align with with people's perception of them. Um, and then, of course, this season, they both had very similar campaigns where back in February, they were the two teams who looked most likely to chased down Bournemouth and now they're both missing out on the playoffs before even getting to final day. Um, there are differences though, I think, 
even though a fair bit of the QPR fan base were quite disgruntled with um, Warburton's, well, with, with the second half of the season, um, he certainly retains the support of of a big a big group of them, and uh, some of the you know the the dissenters I think made a bit of an about turn after the news was announced, and you could see by the support and the reaction that he got after only being there for three seasons on um, on Friday night, it kind of almost felt like a manager who'd been there for a decade, the way that he, the, the send-off that he got. And with Mowbray, I think the, the fan perception is is far um, greater in favour of, of him moving on. I think a lot of them wish him well, but I think the feeling is there that, that they can do better after five years. So, you know, again, with Warbs, you know, he has taken QPR and left them in a far better position than when he took over, in his own words, as Mowbray has at Blackburn. Um, you think back to that team that he first took over, where it felt like it was basically a Barry Eze and then 10 members of a supporting cast on that pitch. And that is not the case now. Um, they're a far better, well-rounded team who have had defensive issues, which for half a season were solved, and they look like one of the best teams in the division. And for the second half of the campaign, things really unraveled. Um, but again, it strikes me as as being a very difficult job to replace because there's no guarantee in my eyes when you've had someone who's performed so, so well over, over three seasons you've got to get the next appointment right um because a poor appointment and this you know this squad and this team are by no means a, a lock to to challenge again uh, next season as i said on quest it my assumption is that they have someone lined up already um there haven't been any hugely strong rumors over the last few days which you sometimes get um, a few different people have been favourite in the interim. Dyche at one point, James Robry at one point. So that doesn't really show you uh, any any huge idea of, of which sort of uh, process they're getting through. Uh, it just doesn't really tally with how I have perceived QPRs, you know, those in charge over the last few years where there's been a lot of talk about patience and rebuilding the club after those years of overspending and, and doing the right things and not, you know, doing the right things over a long or mid to long term period rather than the short term period that's not to say this will be the right or the wrong decision we cannot say that at this point but Warburton it felt like was a very good fit for that I think it's hard to argue that he's done anything other than a a good job maybe I go as far as to say as a very good job if not the dream job because they haven't made the playoffs under him Um, but it doesn't feel like this really tallies with with how I perceive their last few years to have been so it makes me think they've got someone lined up and we'll 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 decide when they join what we think about it. Um, as for Sheffield United, well, it doesn't look easy for them at the moment, uh, does it? And the injuries have to be to blame for a lot of that, particularly the fact that they are playing without a recognised striker. Uh, no doubt, George, on Friday night, that Blaze deserved to win this game, even after going 1-0 down to what I think was QPR's first shot on target. The second half was like, well, it was like a cup game. It was like Premier League against, against non-league at times. Mm. Yeah, it was. Um, it was. It was coming. You know, the first half was was pretty poor from Blades. Um, they they barely tested um, Connor Mahoney uh, in goal for um, for for QPR. Doesn't want to be called that though, does he? Well, until next season when he's called what is it, Connor Cooper? Connor Cooper. Connor. Let's just call him Connor. Um, yeah, they barely tested um, a, a very uh, inexperienced goalkeeper who is by the measure of most goalkeepers, quite short. And they didn't do anything about that. And they were poor and they you know, couldn't really have many complaints about being 1-0 down, even though QPR didn't create a great deal. For the second half, they were superb. Um, you know, I think it helped that they were playing against a side in QPR who, to my eyes, didn't really fancy it, possibly. You know, being on the receiving end of that kind of attacking barrage and that kind of intensity 
with little to play for and having had such a poor second half of the campaign and, and kind of without much confidence, there wasn't much fight in them only when it went to 2-1 naturally. Blades dropped in a bit to defend their lead and, and Cooper had some of the ball without really, um, you know, they hit the bar with a kind of diverted, deflected shot, um, which was the closest they came to scoring after going ahead. And then Blades on the other end and won, won the game 3-1 and were totally good value for that win as well. So, yeah, it, it did feel like a game where if, if you were um, if you were Luton, Borough, um, any of those sides, Blackburn at the time, Millwall, watching that game, you probably would have been quite frustrated at at how um, QPR weren't really able to to kind of fight fire with fire in the second half, but um, but Blades certainly put themselves in a very strong position. But you know, we, it was a massive game. We're recording this at what 11 a.m. on Monday. Um, there's a game this afternoon that's going to have a, a big say in this playoff race between um, Fulham and Luton. And and if you know if if Luton do lose this game at Craven Cottage, it would feel to me like, and I know that Blades have to go to Fulham on final day. But I would start to think that maybe it's Luton who are the ones who are, are most in danger rather than than Blades, especially given that a win for Fulham today would see them crown champions, which in turn would mean that Blades go to to Fulham um, in what will be a, a celebration rather than mm-hmm. a, a need to win. Well, Luton have Reading on final day. On paper, it looks like a very pleasing fixture. I know that uh, I think there's a bit of a bogey team element. Reading always seem to pull out a result against uh, against Luton, so I'm not sure. Impressive is... um, loan signing today from Luton as well. You've seen that? Matt Ingram signed yeah. on an emergency loan, which is as good an emergency loan as you're probably going to really make at this stage. Yeah, unusual, quite peculiar, but I mean, very, very good uh, bit of recruitment for them in, in, in a key moment in their season. Um, it was nice to see this podcast's true first love, Connor Harahan's left foot. Um, stroke one home. Can you stroke a volley? Yeah, I think so. He just caught it so sweetly, didn't he? And it was great to see. Um, but I mean, I suppose Borough really are the most important team in this discussion. We don't think that Millwall will be able to make it because uh, it would be it would have to be a sort of miracle goal swing, miracle results. Um, but Borough could do uh, if they beat Preston on final day. Uh, if Luton only pick up, well, if they don't pick up another point, or or perhaps if they pick up only one, then Borough probably go above them uh, on 70 through, if they win, and, and similar situation with Sheffield United, who play against Fulham. The question is, George, do, would you be confident that Borough will win away at Preston? They did the business against Stoke on the weekend. They, they, they've they just stopped relying on their strikers at all for goals. This was all about the midfield. Uh, Housen was brilliant at the base of it. Crooks got two goals. McGree was really good, very energetic, and Tavernier was playing left wing back. Also impressed there. I, I'm. I think they're making it look quite tough at the moment, and I personally don't have that much confidence that they will win at Preston. And that's really the big question for the battle for sixth spot. If they don't win, then there's no discussion whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I think Crooks' return beyond just the goals is, is very important to them, um, and I think. It's a shame for them they're away from home on final day. Um, I, I get what you're saying about their performances not being great, but they have won two games on the bounce, bounce fairly comfortably after what was a, a really poor run. And looking at you know look, looking at the odds, Betfair Sportsbook have them eight to eleven to win this game, so heavy odds on. So you know a, a well over a fifty percent chance of winning it, and I think that's probably fair. You know Preston, whilst they will provide something of a stern test, whilst they obviously have um, some attacking vigor under under Ryan Lowe, we, we've seen them come up against. A, a side in a what much worse position in Blackburn um, in a similar game in, in similar circumstances and Blackburn were able to to ease clear of them fairly comfortably and, and I kind of I think it could be similar to what we saw with QPR against Sheffield United where if, if Borough can get their noses in front it's hard to see why Preston would have the um, 
the motivation maybe to to kind of make it difficult for them and get back into the game. So, yeah, I, I reckon more likely than not, Borough will win uh, on final day and, and, and force the hand of, of those above them. Well, Millwall are likely to finish eighth or seventh, uh, which it will be an excellent season and huge credit to Gary Rowett for, for getting a lot out of this squad. It, again, for Millwall, their fans will be frustrated. It's another good season. It's not quite as good as... as you know, the perfect season, which would have been making the top six. They beat Posh here uh, 3-0. This game was defined by what I've written in my notes as a huge aerial discrepancy. Uh, (laughs) The the aerial win percentages uh, do not make for good reading for Peterborough, who got bullied in the second half. Uh, Not particularly surprising. A phobe in the goals. Uh, Not the top 20 lives. Jed Wallace coming on (laughs) and whipping into delectable crosses. I, I actually think... Because Jed's been so established over the last five years, like almost no one's played more minutes uh, in the league in that time. Almost no one's got more goal contributions in this time. I'm not sure we've ever really spoken about his game in terms of development and his improvement in that time. But his delivery, his crossing in particular, yeah. has come on so much. On the move as well. Do you remember talking to Steve Morrison a couple of years ago uh, when we worked with him on Sky Sports? And he, we're not sharing something out of turn here because he said it on the show that night. He, he said... You know what he's like. He he's not someone to give out a lot of praise, and and he was asked a question, set up to praise Jed Wallace, which he did in a very Steve Morrison manner. But also said, if he wants to go a lot higher, if he wants to move on from Millwall and play for a much bigger club and perform, his final ball has to get better. I think it's quite hard to to say that it hasn't uh, since that moment in time. And of course, he is out of contract this summer. We don't know where he will go, but it's expected to be a club who'll have. Um, loftier ambitions than than the Millwall, so hopefully he will be testing himself at the very very top of this division, or who knows, maybe the division above, uh, or the Turkish Super League, if rumours of him being linked to Besiktas are, uh, are to be believed. Uh, regardless, uh, a good win for Millwall, three uh, nil. It would take a miracle, sadly, for them to meet the playoffs, but. Uh, a very impressive season performance. There's no doubt about that. Uh, notes from the beach: Bristol City five, Hull nil was quite a fun one. Uh, Vyman doing what Vyman does, making it 22 non-penalty goals for the season. Uh, he's basically scoring. He has basically scored with one in three shots, which is incredible for someone of his position, especially because the chances that he gets are not tap-ins by any means. His finishing, his season of finishing is about as good as I've seen. For Bristol City, George, they, they finish the season in quite a strange situation where their league position is disappointing and poor. But only three teams have scored more goals than them, uh, and it's the top three in the league. Uh, but only one team has conceded more goals than them, and it's Peterborough. So a fairly straightforward equation for them this summer. Can Nigel Pearson and the recruitment team bring in a new defence and improve defensively? There is precedent for this, and they're called Huddersfield Town, and they're fourth in the table. They finished 20th, I think, last season with among the worst defences in the league, and then they bought a whole new defence and now they're one of the best defences in the league. So there is precedent. It'd be interesting to see. Uh, Preston went to Barnsley and won 3-1. Gentry Day, Preston fans looking excellent, having a good time in South Yorkshire. Uh, and their, their their team responded to what was a terrible defeat to Blackburn earlier in the week with a 3-1 win. A couple of beautiful DJ goals and a nice finish from an angle from Reese. Reading nil, West Brom won. Carl and Grant with the winner here. Uh, I don't know what to say about these two teams having explained Reading's contract situation Last week, the fact that they're still under embargo, we believe, ahead of the summer, it's going to be really tough for them. And West Brom, I have no idea what next season looks like for them either. Um, Steve Bruce will be in charge, uh, but there's a lot of question marks there about how much that squad needs to be turned over or how realistic it is that it will be significantly turned over. Uh, And then Derby, 
ended a run of nine away defeats in a row with a 2-0 win at Blackpool. Uh, youngsters scoring, of course, cashing and Ebioe. Uh, really good to see uh, as they look to get this takeover done over the next week or 10 days and head into the summer with some positivity. Cardiff drew one all with Birmingham. Cardiff and Steve Morrison testing out a lot of those young players ahead of the summer. Um, Birmingham not that pleased having taken the lead to have thrown it away. But the main fair on Saturday was League One. George, uh, top playoffs bottom we've got stuff to talk about and a little playoff preview as well i'm just going to walk you through what happened at the very top of the division we're not going to go into these games in greater depth we're going to zoom out and talk about the teams in more general terms but wigan beat shrewsbury 3-0 to secure the title uh, they controlled that game for the most part not too many nervy moments um, but they didn't find it easy to to open shrews up that's for sure it was some wicked set piece deliveries from max power and james mclean that initiated two of their goals the other being a pen uh, rotherham beat gillingham 2-0 uh, they did have the better of this game, but they also did have a couple of nervy bo- moments. Jill's hitting the bar at 1-0. It was a set-piece goal, and then a debut goal from Georgie Kelly, who was signed in January from the League of Ireland. Uh, I don't think he was signed to be playing this season. That's been quite clear by the fact that they've they've held him back. They've been playing Coyote. Um, but Kelly was the one that came off the bench, made his debut, and swept home to make it 2-0 and, and ice the victory. And there was Georgia scenario before the games where MK Dons could catch Wigan if they won, Wigan lost and a six-goal swing occurred. And they did their bit. They beat Argyle 5-0. League One player of the season, Scott Twine, scoring four. The youngest player to score four or more goals in an EFL game since Tammy Abraham for Villa against Forest in November 2018. We're going to talk MK in the playoff preview segment later on. So let's focus on this top two. Wigan Athletic, champions of League One. One year after avoiding the drop by just one point, less than two years, George Alec after going into administration and suffering a traumatic relegation from the championship. What an incredible story this has been to cover. Yeah, it's been incredible. Um, It has been remarkable to see how a manager in Liam Richardson, who um, effectively was only in the job, I think it's fair to say, and I think he uh, wouldn't mind us saying it, because of the off-field issues uh, surrounding Wigan, uh, taking this club, managing to to steer them to safety last season, and then taking them to, to being champions in League One in his first season of management without a <laughs> without a, a, a penalty, basically, um, it is in- incredible what they've done in terms of the recruitment in the summer. You know, we knew at the back end of last season um, on our on our old podcast with the Athletic, we interviewed uh, Dr. Tom Markham, who is who is involved behind the scenes in recruitment and the like, and he spoke about the need to, to recruit smartly. And it, they, they did it in a way that is quite different to how we normally see teams who recruit smartly do so. Um, you know, we see MK Dons picking up a lot of players from League Two. We see um, some um, going over to the League of Ireland and other bits kind of thinking outside the box. But with Wigan, it was basically cherry-picking players who were good League One players who had gone stale at other clubs in League One. You know, you look at um, Max Power, who came in on a free from Sunderland. You look at Tom Naylor and Jack, Jack Watmore, who came in from um, on a free from, from Portsmouth. Those are three players who Pompey and Sunderland fans didn't lose any sleep really over them leaving the club in the summer. And especially in the case, well, all, all three of them have been three absolutely key players for Wigan this season. A lot of Wigan fans will tell you that Naylor's been their player of the season with power and um, and what more not far behind, and, and that we keen. haven't even spoken about, and well, and Keane as well, and and Callum Lang too. I mean, it's it is the, the recruitment, the way that they went about it is novel. Um, 
they were able to, I think, spend a fair few quid on wages, especially with Charlie White, by not spending transfer fees. Um, and Richardson has turned them into a very, very difficult team to break down, who also are ruthless in front of goal, despite not really having a player who had scored many goals prior to this season. You know, Lang's finishing is obviously very good from out on the right-hand side. He is one of those players who has a bit of a trademark finish uh, across the keeper um, coming in from that position. But Keane is someone who hadn't scored 20 goals in his, in his career league goals in his career before the season he's, he's hit 25 um richardson deserves massive credit i think quite weirdly you've got a situation with both room and uh wigan the two promoted clubs where a lot of their fan bases <laughs> i don't think are convinced that they're particularly good uh which is quite strange you see a lot of wigan fans saying you know we, we've been quite poor for big stretches of the season and given how good league one is uh especially with the teams we're going to talk about in the playoff picture um, I guess it's a level of consistency that was shown over the course of the the campaign that's been so important. Don't Other you think teams, the strength you... of League One might have been the most the, the biggest factor in teams not looking massively. Not thinking convinced. they're great. Yeah, not, yeah, normally, yeah, the teams yeah, that yeah. win the league, you know, cut loose and they they smash teams. That hasn't really been the case here. I, I love your point about the recruitment. I mean, this is with all due respect to the names I'm about to read out, and this was because of the situation they were in financially last season. But here are their most well, here are the players that played the most minutes for Wigan last season in League One. Jamie Jones, Curtis Tilt, Tendai Dirikwa, Will Keane, all still at the club. Then the next group, Christopher Merry, Funzo Ojo, Viv Solomon Otterbor, Tom Pierce, Callum Lang, Luke Robinson, Lee Evans, Dan Gardner, Tom James, George Johnston, Alex Perry, Tello Asgard, Joe Dodu, Gavin Massey, Carl Joseph, Scott Witten, Cal Naismith. Now they look the opposite of that. They look like they had a strong core, an experienced core, and seven players this season started 90% of games or more. What more? Every game at the heart of the defence. Max Power initially was a sort of playmaking right back and then a centre mid. Uh, it's his third promotion from League One with Wigan, which is incredible. Tom Naylor, as you mentioned, screener extraordinaire. Top 10 for tackles and interceptions in the league. Uh, and Will Keane ends up with the golden boot. Uh, also the most non-penalty goals, which, as you know, uh, is the real quiz. 26, I think you gave him 25. It was actually 26, I think, and seven assists as well. Incredible, a bit like Vyman in the championship. Incredible conversion rate, uh, scoring with one in four shots. 11-headed goals for him as well. Only Mitro scored more in the EFL. Lang. Relentless attacking plays, really come of age, so direct, loves to get stuck in. Can't wait to see how he goes in the champ next season. Uh, Amos and Director as well, um, big regulars for them. And, and McLean missed some games through injury, but what a performer as well. I think a big part of this that, that impressed me was just how many games they had to play. Obviously, it meant that they had a period where they were resting and other teams were playing uh, when there were there were some COVID issues, I believe. But they've played 25 league games since mid-January and most teams in the league have played 21 or 22. So they've had to squeeze games in and they maintain that consistency. Um, they did concede more goals than Rotherham, but in terms of XG against um, overall the best defence in the league in terms of the underlying numbers, I think that speaks to the organisation, the commitment to defending that was clear throughout uh, and their consistency on that front. Only the 13th, George, team in the league for open play xg so i think this is probably why you end up with fans thinking that at the time at times rather it didn't feel the most fluid that the goals didn't come as easily as maybe they did in 2017-18 for example when they went up with blackburn but the league looked very different then and the goals did come importantly uh, the most set piece goals in the league which might surprise some people more set piece goals than rotherham more than wickham 
um, and and just a very very good record. It was a, a nice blend. They looked after the ball well. Um, not known as a, a really technical possession heavy team, but kept the ball fine when they needed it and happy to play well as uh, long as well and had the players to do so. Wyke initially, McGuinness came in in January as a, as a foil and Will Keane as well, so good in the air. So I thought it was interesting to look back at my notes from, from the pre-season research. I think we had them in eighth in our predictions uh, and I wrote the new Wigan, getting back to the Wigan of two, three, four years ago. They've bought two off Pompey, two off Sunderland, one off Charlton, one off Ipswich and one off Stoke. And then I wrote, I find it very hard to place them right now because you can put a starting 11 out and argue it's a very strong team for the level. But is the depth there? Is the cohesion there? Clean slate, but work still to do. Liam Richardson did a 10 out of 10 firefighting job. How will he do with increased expectations and objectives? 10 out of 10 again. Uh, full credit to Wigan Athletic. And at the point of their relegation from the championship, you would not have said definitively because of the state they were in that we'd see them again at the second tier level anytime soon it hasn't taken them long sensational it's taken Rotherham even less time George uh, promoted for the third time in a row from League One uh, as runners up not as champions in pre-season well my notes were at times they were a mid-table championship level side last season and, and we felt they had a formula of playing that created chances and made it difficult for the opposition to do so with the press with the structure and with a strong squad for the division rather than a weak one which they have in the championship that would be powerful. And for six months from September through February, that was incredibly powerful, George. That They weren't at that level the whole season, but it was enough for them to, to secure promotion and an impressive campaign overall. Yeah, some stupid EFL pundits are saying they were going to win the league by 10 points. Um, I mean, they, they've been they've been so impressive at times. Um, it, it does kind of feel like they, they, they threw away the opportunity to make this a procession in that very strange run of form where things really unraveled in a way that we we, we haven't often seen from Paul Ward teams, although it is worth pointing out that when they uh, went up a couple of seasons ago, they started the season incredibly badly. And Paul Ward was in, you know, he, there was talk of him leaving the club uh, in kind of November time before they went on a, on a merry run um, to, to promotion. Um but what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is, is them back to their best, really. Um, you know, in their last five games, they only conceded two goals. Both of those were by their own doing, they were own goals. Um, and they've been clinical going forward. Hickway's dominance from set pieces, whether he's scoring or assisting, as was the case on Saturday, has been crucial. Michael Smith's return to the side has been very important. Um, you know, Smith is one of those players who is just so much more than a strike than a goal scorer. You know, he, he does score goals. He's never going to be, I don't think, prolific in the sense of, of pushing 25, 30 goals a season. But certainly, you know, he's good value for, their, for, for those that he does get. And what, what did he get this season? 17, 18. Um, but it's what he offers beyond that in terms of holding the ball up, in terms of being a, a focal point in attack and... And being particularly energetic up front as well. And I'm he sure can run a channel with the uh, with the best of them for sure. <laughs> and nineteen goals, exactly nineteen goals a season and six assists. And, and I would say that that doesn't even tell the full story of how good he is and, and what he does and what he impacts and how he impacts games. Um, you know, it, it it's one of those classic cases where they've done this before. Is there any reason to think that that Rotherham are going to be better next season than they've, than they have done in previous seasons in the championship? I think, yes, I think partly because as you mentioned, they were fairly unfortunate um, to, to be relegated, even though they did come bottom in terms of their performances in the season before last, they were better than that or last season, maybe I should say still. Um, and I think certain players are better now. I think Barlasser has 
matured enough to be a real force in the championship next season. I think the signing of Ollie Rathbone has been very important to them as well and gives them a bit more kind of guile, I guess, in midfield too. And it feels to me like um, like Smith himself is someone who, um, given the opportunity, will will improve uh, upper division. Ben Wiles is, is, is obviously now a couple of seasons more experienced too and, and has been so good this, this campaign. It feels to me like, despite the relegation, the team itself has come on a bit um, and certainly Warren, you think, will will have better ideas about how to to try and stay up ne- ne- in the next campaign. So, um, yeah, I think you know, Wigan fans might not, not like to say this, but I think for, for three quarters of the season, Rotherham were clearly the outstanding side in the division and, uh, and are fully deserving their promotion. Interestingly, another note from last summer says, always a bit concerned that Paul Warren might run out of steam. At the end of every season, it feels he's close. I have the same feelings again. You know, he puts so much into it and he's not, he doesn't try to obscure the fact that it takes a lot out of him. Um, and, you know, he did stay on by the start of the season. He was refreshed, revitalised, and his team certainly were. So, you know, I'd, I'd hope that happens again. But um, based on what we saw over the weekend, even in celebrating, you, you have to be concerned about burnout when it comes to Warren. Uh, the most impressive stat for me was 15 away clean sheets in 23 games. I, Again, I haven't done enough research here. I'd be surprised if that's happened before. 15 away clean sheets in 23 games. That's two-thirds of their away games they didn't concede. Uh, sensational. Uh, their core, I mentioned Wigan's core for, for, for Rotherham. It was Smith, who you mentioned. Wiles, who's really reached another level this season. The academy product. Uh, Barlasa, as you mentioned, Ihique at the back. Rathbone was a great signing from Rochdale and Chio Ogbene as well definitely made a leap this season as well was really really dangerous all season um, Smith is assumed to be leaving on a free and he will surely have some suitors based on, on what you've said about him Ooh, which I, I didn't agree. I didn't know that he's been out of contract all season it's not been shied away from he's always said that that you know he, he wasn't committing his future to the club and thankfully everyone was grown up about it and, and it didn't cause problems uh, but unless they find a very large pot of money to offer him as a weekly wage, which might disrupt the dressing room, you have to think, because they wouldn't be able to do that for everyone. Uh, he's going to have a lot of, you know, anyone playing a direct style of play in the championship, most of whom have more money than Rotherham, will be, will be after him. Can so, I make a prediction? Yeah. I think he'll go to Wigan. <sighs> Let's see. Um, it's hard to imagine them ch- changing style hugely because it's a hugely effective style, but without a good target man like Smith, it, it could be quite grim going forward. So they really need to do that well. I'm not sure there are a, a lot of realistic signings around that have his willingness to run the channels as well as banging with CBs and, and scoring goals. I'm sure they'll be sniffing around for Dane Oliver, who's just been relegated with Gillingham. I wouldn't say he runs the channels quite as well, but you know he, he can be a real threat uh, aerially. Uh, Tom Eaves might be available from Hull, probably doesn't fit the, their immediate future, I would suggest. But again, I don't think he's as mobile as, as Smith. Those are the sorts of players that I expect them to be going after. Uh, but let's talk about the playoffs because this is really exciting, George. Sunderland, Wednesday and Wickham all won with different levels of comfort uh, and made the playoffs. We're going to talk playoff preview shortly, but we have to touch on Argyle first. They dropped out after losing 5-0 to MK. From from an Argyle standpoint, George, Saturday was as, as bad as it gets. Expectant home crowd, chance to extend their season, 5-0 defeat. And it shouldn't take away from what's been an amazing season, but that's going to hurt. I feel very sorry for Argyle fans and for everyone involved in the club because it does take away from what has been an incredible campaign. Um, as they were very keen to remind us, we predicted them to come to get relegated, I think, 23rd at the beginning of the season. Definitely happy 
to not you know i'm not going to try and shy away from that at all it, it was a prediction based on where we saw their squad what we saw from them last season and using that as a marker of of their campaign finishing seventh is a quite incredible performance and overachievement from everyone involved and being in the automatic promotion race up until 43 games and then missing out in the way they have shouldn't take away from the achievement or the overachievement in that campaign um you know it came down to to basically all it was was Wickham hitting form at the end of the season and going past them very very late on that stopped them from getting into the playoffs um so you have to feel very sorry for them I hope that you know once the disappointment of not only missing out but also being thrashed in the way that they were on Saturday once that disappointment um and it moves on I hope our Gulf fans are able to look back with pride at what has been an amazing campaign. I hope Stephen Schumacher is able to look back on what's been a, a pretty turbulent first six months in first team management after stepping up when, when Ryan Lowe left with some pride as well. Um, I, right now sitting here, would definitely have Plymouth Argyle as being one of the most likely teams to finish in the top six next season if given the way that that club has run, given the year-on-year progression that we see from them um, and given what we've seen from Schumacher so far this season. And also so many key players in that side and from where I am it doesn't seem particularly likely that I don't see any reason why they won't be able to keep the majority of that squad together next season I'm sure there will be interest but I'm you know the way that club has run unless they're there the the price is right for those players they'll still be there next season so and often as can be the case um you know when uh, when it became pretty obvious early on in that game that it wasn't going to be their day um things unraveled very quickly and um even though results weren't going for MK elsewhere. They were fully in the knowledge that they had to do their bit by scoring as many goals as possible. And it was just a a, um, a perfect storm for, for MK. Well, it wasn't because they didn't, they didn't get, get promoted. But, you know, it, the, the circumstances around the game um, meant that it was it couldn't really have been more more miserable for, for Plymouth Argyle. It did come up against the best individual performance of the season from Scott Twine. Um mm. Just loves a game on Sky, doesn't he? Just loves a game on Sky, and he's got two more of them, at least, over the next week or so. Um, Argyle, only the third team in the history of the EFL to reach 80 points and not make the playoffs. Oxford, quick one. You're going to hate this. 76 points for Oxford United. The last time you'd have got 76 points and not made the playoffs with that tally, 9 10 That's over 10 years yeah. ago. And, even worse, didn't even get the gong for most goals scored because Wigan's three goals <laughs> tied with Oxford. Anyway, um, let's talk about the playoff action. I will start with the schedule. Half a gong, though. Clear the decks. I keep saying this. I need a better phrase. Clear your diary. Thursday, 5th of May, 7.45, Wickham MK Dons. Friday the 6th, 7.45, Sunderland Sheffield Wednesday. The reverse fixtures, Sunday at 6.30, MK against Wigan. And Monday night, 7.45, Wednesday against Sunderland. Let's start with that one. It's the two best supported teams in the league in terms of average attendance, Sheffield Wednesday against Sunderland. It's two teams in this league with a history at a much higher level. Let's say that. Both teams hitting very high standards recently as well, George. Well over two points per game, both of these two teams in the last 10 weeks. Tactically, similar basic shapes, 3-5-2 against 3-5-2. And they finished with only one point between them. There's a lot of ways... George, that it's hard to split Wednesday and Sunderland and that only increases the excitement heading into this playoff semi-final. 
Yeah, it really does. I mean, it's too... I know you hate the, the talk of big clubs. Notice um, I just said that, but in like four different ways, as, so as to avoid <laughs> saying big clubs. But um, I can guarantee you right now that... Um, the big club ometer is like breaking. It's straining. But, but also, I mean, the, around the kind of infrastructure of the clubs as well and the way that they, well, say the way that they run, but the, maybe the budget that they have means that despite MK Dons' incredible performance this season and the fact that Wickham have bounced back from relegation, the likes of Carl Robinson, um, Stephen Schumacher, uh, Kieran McKenna will be hoping that the winner of this tie gets promoted at the end of the season and that we can get rid of one of these two t- two teams from League One in the next campaign. Because in the case of Sheffield Wednesday, you know, I think they're second in the XG ratio table over the course of the season. Um, they, to me, are probably the team who uh, really should have been promoted automatically and missed out rather than MK Dons. Uh, just a really poor start to the season. And, and we see it quite often with teams coming down from, from the championship where I think League One takes them by surprise a bit. I think there's a bit of complacency there. I think there's a, an assumption that things are going to are gonna go their way early on. Um, and some managers and clubs deal with it better than others. And Sheffield Wednesday for them only lasted a couple of months before they kind of reset at the turn of the year and were able to, to go on this incredible run. For Sunderland, it's taken the best part of four years. And um, I still kind of think we saw some of the attitudes around their change of manager with Lee Johnson and some of the conversations there that the attitude that League One is beneath them maybe still exists to, to a part. And that, and that is that contributes to, to a downfall. I mean, in Any terms of this... on, on Alex Neil Sunderland so far? In, in terms of this this game, I think Alex Neal versus Darren Moore is a, is a big positive in the Sunderland camp. And that is absolutely no disrespect at all to Darren Moore, who I think is a very good coach and I like a lot. Um, and, you know, has obviously built up some experience in the, in the last couple of seasons. It's more that Alex Neal has won promotion to the Premier League. You know, Alex Neal has... Through the playoffs. Has, through the playoffs. Alex Neal has done this before. You know, this is... There's nothing for him to be overly concerned about here whereas for Darren Moore this is there is a massive weight of expectation on his shoulders for somebody who's going into this kind of um, game or this kind of playoff campaign um, for the first time that is the positive also you've got the Barry Bannon narrative here which is about Bannon has been um, probably the second best player in in League One this season Uh, he's been the most informed player in the League One probably over the last three or four months until Saturday. And he went off injured on Saturday, which is an absolute disaster for, for Wednesday because he's so important to the way that they play. Naturally, the club are being incredibly tight-lipped about um, whether or not he is going to be available. The, um, I'm the, sure the the, uh, the underground rumours were that he was seen walking pretty freely after the game around the pitch with his kids clapping the fans and didn't look too sore. If I, I mean, if I was Sheffield Wednesday, I'd be putting out a statement announcing that he's broken his leg, even if he's going to play on Saturday, on on the weekend. You know, that's the kind of dark arts I think you need <laughs> going into a playoff campaign. And we're going to talk about the master of the dark arts of this stuff uh, in a second as well. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, that is a huge turning point, whether he plays or not, because, because that's, because he's so important. I would say going into this game, Sheffield Wednesday are the better side just about, and, and, have, and have been so over the last couple of months. So I think there are a couple of, of circumstances there, both in terms of who's in the dugout and the Bannon injury that could play in Sunderland's favour. But then there's also the issue with Nathan Broadhead, who I'm not necessarily sure the league has woken up to how good he is and how important he's been to Sunderland when he's back fit. Um, and he scored the all-important goal against Morecambe on Saturday before then coming off just about 15 minutes later, injured again. 
and him being out of the side, as is shown by the fact that Sunderland were unable to to um, to kind of kick on without him against Morecambe on Saturday, is it could be as equally a bigger blow, I think, given what he can offer for Sunderland uh, if he's missing too. So it's it's so delicately poised. It's it's you know we saw how good those playoff semis were a couple of years ago between Sunderland and Pompey. Um, this feels pretty similar about two teams who are you know who who are very in 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 rich veins of form um my only concern with Sheffield Wednesday as well is they are struggling defensively at the moment you fancy them to create chances against anyone but we saw them because he two against Fleetwood even when they went 3-0 up against MK they got about to 3-2 went 1-0 1-0 down against Pompey um and that should you know make for a, a pretty entertaining game um I I'm, I'm sitting on the fence in terms of. I mean, I think. Don't make any predictions you, yet. We're come. We're going to come back to that. Fine. We'll come back to that. Okay. Um, okay. For, for okay. those who haven't watched a ton of League One football, um, fingers crossed. T- everyone touch wood that Bannon and Broadhead are available because they are. I would say they're probably the two key players, uh, and they're both going into it with question marks after limping off uh, on Saturday. Just watch out for Bannon, who has the great, great foundation behind him, laid by Byers and Luongo. That midfield three have been brilliant the last few months. Bannon with a sort of free-ish role, watch him drifting out into the wide areas, combining with with, with wing-backs and whipping in crosses, um, watch him playing through balls between full-backs and centre-backs. He's, he's been in masterful form. Lee Gregory up front is also now in a position where the team is getting the best out of him and not asking him to do stuff that he, he, he doesn't thrive at doing. Eight goals in eight games for, for Gregory heads into this in good form. And they've just got players back at the right time Wednesday. They've always had a, a big squad full of impressive names for the level but they've had desperately tough times with injuries this season but look at their subs bench on Saturday you know, the starting 11 makes a lot of sense now that wasn't always the case this season but even on the bench you've got Windass, Patterson, Deli Bashiru, Mendes Lang these are good players who can impact games in different areas of the pitch as well Sunderland unbeaten in 13 though um, they've only lost one game under uh, Alex Neal and I think it's even more impressive given that I think he's been kind of working things out tactically and in terms of personnel as he goes. Um, it's not the most balanced squad, to be quite honest with you. Uh, he's, he's settled on a 3-5-2 formation. And again, it's not always round pegs in round holes. Is that the phrase? I think it is. Um, interesting situation in goal. Anthony Patterson is, is Sunderland's number one now. Um, has been for the last few months. He was on loan at Notts County until January. 21 years old. Uh, academy product. And he... Well, the, the, this is going to be the biggest few games of his career for sure. Uh, at the back, they've got some experience now in, in um, Bailey Wright and Danny Bart is back in from injury the last few games. And then it'll be plus one uh, on top of those two. Cherkins played a bit at left centre-back. Doyle played a lot of games to start the season. 18-year-old on loan from City, but he's been uh, rested a lot recently. Came back in for a game. Uh, even Luco Nines played centre-back there as well as playing in an advanced midfield role and left wing-back in the last few weeks. He can play Anywhere, as we know, in midfield, one of my favourite players in the EFL, Jay Matete, has already established himself at the heart of this Sunderland midfield. He'll be snapping at heels, uh, using his agility and balance to, to roll away from players in possession and carry the ball. Corey Evans next to him. Uh, and then a lot of options for Neil in front, basically. He's got players like Alex Pritchard, um, Jack Clark, Patrick Roberts. He's, he's kind of played them in, in a few different types of positions. Clark's been playing wing back. He's been playing with really attacking wing backs, which is exciting. Uh, on this front because in a 3-5-2 against 3-5-2 the wingbacks are well that's kind of the key battle isn't it uh, and then just desperate for Broadhead to be fit because his finishing as you mentioned has been incredibly impressive and sharp recently and Ross Stewart ended up as the league's second top goal scorer but, but hasn't necessarily looked in the sharpest form recently himself uh, if Broadhead's injured 
I guess Roberts or Clark or Pritchard will play up up and near him. It's not ideal for Sunderland. So uh, been fascinating thinking about this. Overall, my thoughts are fairly similar to yours. I think I think Wednesday have an advantage in terms of definitely in terms of athleticism and speed in their squad in their starting eleven and off the bench for whatever that's worth. Uh, Alex Neil, I consider to be a master tactician. I think he'll make sure that's not the key factor in this game. He'll make sure that the, the game isn't played with a ton of space. Um, I think Wednesday look the stronger group on paper in terms of starting 11 players in natural positions and being put in a, in a good situation tactically now by Darren Moore. Um, but I believe, like you do, that Sunderland have the better manager in terms of strategy, in terms of any big in-game tweaks that need to be made. And they have the home leg. I, I think if Neil gets it spot on tactically in the first leg, and the home advantage really hits home, that's Sunderland's best chance. Getting a, maybe a two-goal win in the first leg would be huge. That's not the only factor here. So uh, we're going to do predictions after the next preview, but that is a fascinating fixture, as is MK Dons versus Wickham. George, you said a few weeks ago that the team that didn't make it up in the autos of the three might be in poor shape because of the, the kind of trauma of it all. But MK Dons, 5-0 win against Argyle. Does that, <laughs> does that cancel that out? They're, they're going to be heading into yeah. this feeling pretty confident. I think so. And I think the fact that they went in at half time uh, on Saturday knowing their fate and knowing that they were going to, um, they weren't going to get promoted and that their dream, well, unless there was, it was unlikely they were going to get promoted effectively. And you still see the scenes kind of at the end of the game and, and you see the way that Twine celebrated his fourth. Um, it, it didn't look necessarily to me to be a side who were, you know, disconsolate. I, I think if they'd um, fluffed their lines to, you know, in terms of winning that game and um, they'd been the architects of their own downfall, it could have been a different story. But um, I, I think they go into the playoffs with on the back of beating a side who have just missed out to Wickham 5-0 will give them massive confidence. Um, I think the, the little wobble we saw them have, you know, the defeat to Oxford and, and the poor performance uh, prior to that as well, um, will... Uh, you know, it is a distant memory now. And in Twine, they've got a player who, you know, I spoke about Spence and, and Brennan Johnson being Premier League quality players in in the Championship um, and how important that could be for the rest of their season. I think having Twine playing in the form that he is at the moment, um, what Liam Manning has done with him this season, uh, it's amazing to think that Swindon Town uh, in their in their position last season, um, you know, Swindon didn't see Scott Twine as someone who could who could be of benefit to them and farmed him out on loan to Newport County. You know, he is a Championship player playing in League One uh, and comes into this in, in good form as well. So they'll come into it with confidence. I, I don't um, think there's going to be too much of a hangover, but they are playing up against an incredibly awkward side uh, in this, in this, and there's going to be, you know, there isn't going to be much of a clash of stars, I don't think, in Wednesday against Sunderland. Um, but I think here we're going to see, I'm so intrigued and fascinated to see how, uh, Gareth Ainsworth is going to set up his Wickham side over two legs against MK. I cannot wait for this from a, a sort of tactical point of view. Fire versus ice, yin versus yang, etc., etc. And the beauty of it is, George, as you've kind of alluded to there, but but I think both teams are happy with the matchup. I think both teams are happy that the other is at the extreme end of the spectrum on, on the other side of, of style of play. I think that makes it more exciting. Um, you've got Ainsworth's vibe and aura and his experience and his track record versus Liam Manning's calm leadership. It's his debut EFL playoff campaign. He has not put a foot wrong since taking over at MK Dons, but there'll still be people who will lean towards Ainsworth's track record. 
Um, MK Don's attacking situation is quite interesting. I'm just going to chat through some of my notes on the on the kind of it's not quite tactical analysis, but um, my version of it. Uh, Moise is obviously out for the rest of the season, so no out and out number nine for them. Uh, it'll be Parrot and Twine, uh, who dovetail really nicely, uh, and then. On the weekend, Kasumu played in a really advanced role. Now, he's a central midfielder by trade, really mobile midfielder who covers ground unbelievably well, uh, and he played in a really advanced role. Uh, Matt McGinn, actually, who's on NTT20 squad, put some meat on the bones, saying Kasumu played in a completely new role, off Parrot, way more advanced than usual. Uh, Manning said post-match this was partly so he could man-mark Jordan Houghton, but he was also really destructive in possession. The Argyle defence couldn't handle his runs in behind, although he's had a stop-start season with injuries and probably hasn't developed as some people hoped it looks like this new uh, attacking role suits him really well so that's exciting important because a threat in behind is is kind of crucial for all teams i think and parrot and twine neither of them naturally uh, in behind runners uh, to coin a phrase that doesn't exist uh, you've got an interesting situation in midfield as well uh, connor coventry and josh mckechran for mk very much in the technical possession-based mould. They can dictate. They're very proficient on the ball and they're going to have a lot of it. But they can be overpowered, I think, physically, if not careful. It's all about the managers avoiding situations that accentuate their weaknesses. Um, I can't wait. For, for Wickham, you know, they've been playing games like this for years now in the same style. Uh, but now the difference is they have better attacking players. Very specifically, Sam Vokes and Gareth McCleary. Vokes... A master target man at this level has been brilliant and looks like a whole new man. He looks like he's enjoying his football and, and that's been crucial for him. It's been clear that he's lacked confidence playing in the championship for years now, but certainly not anymore. And it's testament to, to uh, Ainsworth, as is the form of Gareth McCleary. Could be a key man here. 11 goals this season. 10 of them at home, only one away from home. So the home leg could be important. That's the first leg as well. Don't be surprised if McCleary makes a big difference in that home leg. He's their most likely player to set up a chance as well. Creative numbers are really good. Any moments where McCleary is carrying the ball, which he does so well, so skillful, those are going to be big moments. MK Don's uh, backpedalling, McCleary carrying it at them. That's going to be Those are going to be big moments in the game. As are set-piece situations, clearly, because that's something that Wickham have thrived uh, at for years now. The aerial stuff, uh, and it's not hard, as we know, when you know how to do it, to manufacture opportunities to put the ball in the box. They will treat any situation, any free kick within... 80 yards of the goal as an opportunity to put the ball in the box and put pressure on, on MK. Same with throw-in situations. The fact is that Wickham have an aerial advantage here. That's undeniable, It just in terms of the height of their team. Um, but MK's set-piece defending in the regular season has been brilliant and probably not what people expect to be a vulnerability. It hasn't been. The fourth lowest XG allowed from set-play situations in League One. I can't really believe it, given their relative lack of height, not just the centre-backs, but all over the pitch compared to other teams at the level. But they have to keep reminding themselves that what they've been doing has worked and they're going to need to do it a lot in these games. Per Scout, you've got Tafazoli and Stewart, the centre-backs for Wickham, with a significantly higher aerial win percentage than O'Hara, Lewington and Darling, the, the MK centre-backs. You've got Vokes there as well. Those are going to be big moments. For all the talk about MK maybe being overpowered, it's not been the case this season. There are five teams, George, who looking at the Opter Analyst sort of style of play metrics skew direct, right? That's Wickham, Rotherham, Burton, Accrington and Gillingham. You look at the, the MK results against those teams. They won one and lost one against Rotherham. They beat Wickham twice, 1-0. They beat Burton twice, 1-0. 
They beat Accrington 2-0 and drew one all away. And they won one and drew one against Gillingham, only conceding six goals in the 10 games they played against these direct sides. And four of those six were against Rotherham. So I think if we're myth-busting a little, MK have stood up to this all season. So they will feel confident on that front. Another bit of myth-busting, Wickham, strong. Strong is their whole personality, mentality. Defensively strong, not really. Not as much as you might think. Compared to the other top teams at the level, that's where they've fallen down this season. Not as good defensively. They have tightened up a little bit in, in the last few weeks as as Tafazoli and, and Stewart have re-established themselves at the heart of the defence. But something to watch. And of course, you've got Twine. Nine goals from outside the box this season. The next best in the EFL is Perot with seven and then Bannon with six. One of the best bits of recruitment at this level for a long time. Just a rare, rare ability put in a perfect team situation. He could have a big say as well. Logically, I think MK win this one, but I do not see it being comfortable at all. My heart says, Ali, remember everything we've seen from Wickham Wanderers over the last few seasons. So I don't really know where I stand there. Uh, overall, <laughs> pick to win the playoffs, George. You have to. We, we are legally obliged to make a pick to win the playoffs. Well, I'll go through what I think. Over the legs. I mean, I think I'm going to side with Sheffield Wednesday against Sunderland just um, just because I think they are such a, a strong attacking force. And it does sound like Bannon, you know, from what you say, is maybe more likely to play than not. And um, But, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Sunderland were to win. It's, it's kind of on a knife edge. In terms of Wick and M- MK, kind of building on what you said there about um, them being seen as a strong defensive side, uh, maybe that not being the case. It's important to also remember that when they last went up th- from League One, they played a play semi-finals against Fleetwood, and those games finished 4-1 at Fleetwood to Wickham, with two Fleetwood players being sent off, and then a two-all draw at Adams Park. You know, and then it was in the final game where they faced a side maybe most similar to MK in terms of, of playing style in Oxford's possession-heavy team, and we watched that game together. Obviously, it, you know, it stuck in my mind. And Wickham just dropped in very deep and basically restricted Oxford to any chances at all. You know, Gareth Ainsworth is, as I say, the master of the dark arts here, where he will have a game plan over two legs here. Either he will look at MK Dons and, and decide for himself, look, we're going to struggle to stop them from from creating chances. So we've got to fight fire from fire with fire here. Probably try and get players sent off, try and spring them on the on the counter and turn it into a, a bit of a basketball game where we can try and you know, basically outscore them over the two legs or he'll do what he did against Oxford and drop in very deep and look to be more defensively sound than they have been in, in the last few weeks. I definitely think MK are the more, more likely winners of, in the tie. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't be putting my money on it, let's say that. My pick to win the, the League One playoffs is Sheffield Wednesday. Um, I think the, that first half performance against MK Dons the other, the other night uh, live on Sky was was just um, an example of maybe how how far how how good they can be on their day. And even though MK, I've got massive time for, and I think Liam Manning's had an incredible job. I just think Wednesday's quality in the end might win out. Famously, I went three for three in my playoff picks last season, so that means I will likely go zero for three this year. But what served me well was trying to get rid of all of the noise and focus very particularly on who I thought was the best team going into the playoffs. And in Brentford and in Blackpool and in Morecambe, the teams that I considered to be the best teams heading into the playoffs won the playoffs. So I'm going to stick with that formula. I think the winner comes from Wednesday and Sunderland, and I'm leaning towards Wednesday as well. I don't know who wins MK Wickham, but I think Wednesday will win the playoffs. So congratulations and all commiserations. Both of us. 
Yeah, okay. <laughs> to the Wednesday fans. We should say as well, it's not like we're sticking our necks on the line hugely. They are the favourites um, with the Betfair Sportsbook to win the League One playoffs, and we both agree there. So um, really can't wait for that. Um, make sure if you'd like to join and sort of follow along, the NTT20 squad's probably the best place to be. Uh, last season during the playoffs was amazing. You've got over 100 EFL nuts following these games along, chipping in with thoughts and enjoying all the action. That's where we'll be as well over the next few weeks, enjoying the playoff action. Join the NTT20 squad. Uh, you can join with a two-week free trial if you like. Uh, head to the link in our description to do so. And do give it a go. This is a great few weeks to do so. I, I promise you, you won't be disappointed. It's a great place. Uh, a couple of League One relegations to touch on, George. Uh, every team at the bottom lost, except for Doncaster Rovers, who drew with Oxford. Uh, Donny were relegated. Uh, it's been a, a, a horrific season for them, which follows a horrific second half of last season. It's now 18 months of a proper decline and poor performance for Doncaster in League One. They head into League Two with a, a lot of question marks, I would suggest. Um, McSheffrey making the point that he thinks they've got a, a good core of talented players. I'm not sure I necessarily see it that way, but of course the narrative around players can change so quickly when they start playing for teams that win games compared to a team that loses games. And they have McSheffrey, we think, in the dugout, and they have James Coppinger, club legend, uh, leading things in terms of head of football operations. I must admit, it scares me a little just because that's not a lot of experience. Almost no experience, in fact, which which makes me think that the worst case scenario for Doncaster is that they, they could be eaten alive. They could be eaten alive this summer in the transfer market in terms of squad building. Or they could get eaten alive a little bit in League Two next season against uh, some teams who might be m more ready for the level. Um, of course, the upside... We don't know. They could be excellent operators as well. They could equally put together a great squad, play a great style of play and, and attack the league. But I'm not feeling that positive about it. A couple of the other ones, George. Uh, Wimbledon lost their game to Accrington, got relegated, haven't won in 27 to finish the season, of course. Um, they went down a certain path, Wimbledon, this season. And, and maybe this wasn't the division in which to, to do that. Maybe this wasn't the division in which, short term, that was going to bear too much fruit. Uh, how do you see the next period of AFC Wimbledon's life looking? I think they need to persist with it, um, to be honest. I, I think there are still... It's, it's bizarre that they've gone through this run because you take, in you know, Jack Radoni, you take Luke McCormick, you take uh, Basal. Those are three players who would be wanted, coveted by by plenty of, of League One clubs and, and, and higher. Um, and the season started so well and it looked like it was such a smart... Um, way to, to run the club so um, you know we hear Mark Bowen's interview after the game on Saturday it sounds like he at least thinks he's going to be there next season when he talks about the future which will be interesting you know I, I, I kind of assumed it was more of an interim role but whether that that bears fruit we're going to see um, but I you know it's just been a, a horrific run where I think the there's more of a a mental issue rather than a technical deficiency here the amount of leads that they've um, given up when you look at how close they are to, to staying up and how it went to the final day um, they're they more than anyone else after their start I feel like their relegation was so avoidable um, 27 without a win just isn't good enough but they put themselves in positions to win plenty of those games and weren't able to do it so yeah I mean it's and, and we've said it plenty of times you know the Oli Palmer decision doesn't look great now, but at the same time, in terms of pure business decision, when you when you offer that kind of money and the players offer that money, it's hard to do anything anything else. But but weigh up the um, you know the the realistic value of that player and compared to what you're being offered and and take the value. Uh, and I know that a lot of Wimbledon fans will hear that and point to the relegation. But 
I'm, I'm sure uh, those involved at the club didn't expect to get relegated at the time. That was, you know, didn't expect to not win another game till the end of the season. It's, um, it's been an absolutely desperate six months for everyone involved at the club. I think what I perceive to be a very strong personality of the club. It's a story that that everyone knows about, um, but I do think that's real. I think it's perceptible when you're there, and I think it's a great strength heading into uh, what is a, a tough summer, um, trying to sift through the wreckage, trying to move aside the bad feeling and the disappointment. I think that's a strength for Wimbledon uh, moving into to next season. I don't think that the fan base, compared to others, are going to be hugely deterred from continuing to support their team at their brand spanking new stadium, which they're all pretty pleased about. I really think that's a, a big strength for them into next season. Uh, the football side, the recruitment, the manager in the dugout, still all a bit up in the air. As for Gillingham, I have no idea, mate, because Neil Harris came in and gave them hope where they had none initially and then lost that momentum, I'm afraid. Only one win in their last nine. Now, Harris is, is not taking or being given any of the blame for this relegation. That's fine. He had some pretty strong quotes on Saturday after the game. He called what had happened there a disgrace. Um, threw pretty much everyone under the bus, from playing staff, from the previous management team, from the the chairman, the board, those who put structures, you know, who are meant to sort of put foundations and structures in place. I'm sure they'll stick with him because they feel lucky to have him. But he's kind of out there on his own now. It feels, um, and it's a lot of work for one person to do to build a structure make sure that there are people who are building the right structure to put together a whole new squad because he basically intimated that he didn't want almost any of the players to be there next season and to set up a style of play and to lead training all this stuff it's a huge job for Harris he's taken on a serious responsibility uh, and again I don't really know what next season looks like yet I think I think Northampton have to be the the blueprint for, for Gillingham um, the way that they handled relegation last season and what they've done in League 2 this season that feels like a fair blueprint for Gillingham uh, but it's it's a big old job I tell you that for Neil Harris um, the good news on the flip side was that Fleetwood survived uh, they only won one of their last 21 league games and that was against Crewe so it's pretty remarkable that they survived uh, they survived with 40 points which is the first time that's happened in the third tier since three points for a win was introduced uh, in the early 80s so I can't speak that positively about how the team has played this season um, but I can say it's a it's a pretty impressive effort given how much we think that the the budget has had to be slashed, how many young players they have given game time to while selling other young players like Matete and Hill. I mean, Barry Bagley scored probably my favourite goal of the weekend, just absolute skill and impudence and invention against uh, Bolton. And when his name popped up on the video printer, I was like, who, who's this guy? How many of these are the, have they got? How many of these like 19, 20, 21 year olds have they got and where are they coming from? Um, so I'm kind of excited to see how they go over the summer, but I don't hold a huge amount of hope for them because I just think they could be swallowed up by the league without it really being their fault uh, next season. Uh, anyway, we'll see Stephen Craney um, achieving survival with Fleetwood and then Morecambe, George. Morecambe, we had them surviving in our 1-24s. to We felt there's something special there. 102 years in existence. They've never been relegated. What an achievement. And there's that man, Derek Adams, at the heart of it. Incredible achievement. And I think there's so much talk about the teams that get relegated in the promotion race and stuff. It's, it's often to forget about the side who um, were, were destined for the drop, who lost their manager, not because they sacked him, but because he moved on to what he thought were better things um, and bring in their old manager who started off absolutely terribly. And for Derek Adams to 
to turn that ship around. You know, it's it's not quite as incredible an achievement as as um, getting promoted out of League Two last season in the playoff final, but it's not it's not far off. You know, it's it's amazing. It's amazing what he's done um, with the squad that he put together. Um, you know, and and I guess the only thing that they can try and aspire to now is to become the next Accrington, become the team who, you know, it becomes the norm for them to massively overachieve uh, and and become a, a regular fixture in League One. He's going to have his work cut out next season. We'll see what happens with Cole Stockton next season. I've got a feeling he might move on, um, probably for some fairly decent money, which hopefully Adams will be able to reinvest into the squad. Um, but it's going to be very difficult to replace what he offers that club. And, you know, it feels like with someone like Stockton, because he is someone who uh, shoots a lot. And, uh, you know, in, in a team where he is the star, it, it works okay. And he's a talisman, whether it'll work quite as well when there are some other players who might want to um, to do something with the board as well in the final third. We'll see. But uh, incredible, incredible campaign from everyone involved at the club. Got huge admiration for... A bit like what I said with Wimbledon, the, the mentality of the club and, and those who run it, uh, the ambition that they have, their, their refusal to accept the status quo, their refusal to recognise, you know, what I sometimes refer to as the, the EFL food chain. Uh, and I think the Accrington point is a very, very strong one. That that has to be the blueprint for them. Notes from the beach, by the way, leads me to Accrington, who beat Wimbledon and secured back-to-back top half finishes which is just incredible which should be celebrated so much um it's not uh the sort of chunkiest news of the day so we're not going to go in depth on it but huge congratulations to Accrington to John Coleman and the squad that he's built uh, and to Bolton as well uh top 10 finish after winning promotion that is very impressive that is a club moving in the right direction and I've no doubt they're targeting the playoffs next season. It's going to be an interesting league, isn't it? Ipswich won 4-0 against Charlton. And I accidentally said on Quest that they're my favourites right now for the League One title. If We know who's coming down from the champ. We don't know everyone that's coming up from League Two. So much is going to happen between now and the start of next season. But right now, I'd be picking Ipswich Town. Uh, maybe we'll talk about that in more depth over the summer. And then Cambridge and Cheltenham played out an entertaining two-all draw. Um... That meant that all four teams came up from League Two last season, stayed up. Uh, in the in the in the case of Cambridge and Cheltenham, stayed up handsomely, um, and and have to be so proud and impressed. Mark Bonner and Mike Duff continuing to grow their reputations. And lastly, George, some manager news: Michael Appleton leaving Lincoln City was announced. Um, I think for the neutral, this one probably came out of the blue a little bit. Reading into it, kind of feels like one of those rare occasions where. There's not a lot of bad blood, maybe genuinely mutual for the first time ever and, and potentially could lead to, to opportunities for both clubs, uh, for both clubs, for, for the club and I guess for the manager. as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this season clearly hasn't gone to plan at all for, for Lincoln and Michael Appleton. Um, it is the one kind of blot on his copybook, I guess, um, ever since taking the Oxford job uh, after a difficult first couple of jobs of management where, you know, even on, on our podcast all those years ago, he, you know, he, he explained that he'd learned from those decisions to, you know, that the ownership were maybe more important than, than the club in terms of, of, of the next job. Um, but what he did last season at Lincoln was, was pretty extraordinary. And he set um, levels that, that he was unable to, to kind of achieve and reattain this season. Uh, a lot of, Injury issues, of course, played a big part in that. It's important to point out, but um, I've, I, it kind of feels like having got them so close to the championship, then 
overseen such a poor season, it would be quite hard to kind of re-rail, I guess, and push on again for, net, for the next campaign. Although, good to see a lot of Lincoln fans um, expressing a bit of dismay that he's moving on. I, I have no doubt that Michael Appleton will be fine. Um, he will be sought after and he will uh, get a job, I'm sure, probably another League One job um, fairly soon. Um, Great use of for Lincoln. re-rail. Great use of re-rail. I like that. I'm going to try and add that one Thanks. to my Arsenal. Um, I read a line over the weekend. Greetings of Arsenal. Greetings of Arsenal. I really <laughs> like that one. I might add it to my Arsenal. I read a line by Mark Wiley, who's local reporter. He's, he wrote, it would be no surprise to see him back in the game very soon, possibly on the coaching staff at a higher level club. Now, it might be a throwaway line, but it felt like one of those lines that doesn't end up there by accident. So that's quite interesting. Of course, when he left Oxford, his next role was at Leicester City uh, on the coaching staff. I also read a line... Over the weekend, just quickly, uh, a line that I can't find. I don't know if it's been taken out of a piece or whether I dreamt it or whether it's there, but I can't find it, that said something like, don't be surprised to see Lincoln go down a similar route to Ipswich Town and MK Dons in appointing a young manager with a background in youth football. So that's something to look out for as well. Uh, you look like you wanted to say something about Apple's which is the case at all times, but now's your time. <laughs> oh, I just remember that when I interviewed him for our pod, he was, he was pretty... Um explicit in saying that it was the other side of, of management that he would kind of enjoyed and wanted to look into more. I think things like recruitment and, and, and off pitch stuff. So in that sense, I mean, obviously things can change over the last couple of seasons, maybe he's sick of it and just wants to get back to coaching elite, elite footballers. Well, I don't know. Um, I'd be pretty surprised. He, he strikes me as someone who's, who's pretty forthright in his ambitions of being a, a successful football manager. Um, but we'll see that it kind of, it, it goes against, what I'd heard from him in terms of, of where he saw his strengths. Well, going back to Lincoln, what I said about uh, the, the, the MK Dons Ipswich approach, I know that Ian Foster, who's the current England men's under-19s head coach, is has been mentioned in dispatches, shall we say, for this role. Um, he certainly fits the bill. He certainly fits the bill. Uh, we'll wait and see uh, on that front. It, my percep- I think it's an interesting time for Lincoln and quite a delicate one. My... my perception of the ownership is that they support the club really well but in a sensible manner this isn't an ownership that overspends just to compete with the big hitters in league one they're trying to do things quote-unquote smarter right so that can work really well but it's delicate and and they've already got a lot of young players they've probably going to be approaching a lot of low knees again it's a bit of a tightrope situation um and maybe this is an example of me just making a point that where correlation does not equal causation but in this competitive league one is it a coincidence that the teams with maybe an above average number of really young inexperienced players either academy players or low knees in crew wimbledon doncaster and fleetwood were four of the bottom five that's something that lincoln have to be very careful of uh, next season let's talk about league two unfortunately we have to do so swiftly because there's two huge games in league two almost as soon as we finish recording and they, they changed the playoff picture so much that we can't really say anything definitive by the time you listen to this those games will have happened what we can talk about is the top two george which has changed for the first time in months and months and months and months because forest green lost 3-1 to harrogate and Exeter went to Northampton. Whether they had heavy heads or not, they came back and drew at 1-1. Exeter heading to final day in pole position to win the League 2 title. What are your thoughts? Do we have to talk about this? Mm. <laughs> For those uh, who want some context. Um, Would it be fair to say Alien... your summer looks quite different if Forest Green yeah. win the league versus if they don't win the league? 
Yeah, yeah, on on a fourteen to one backer and in, in kind of mid August on Forest Green to win the league. Uh, they've been top ever since, and now they aren't. Uh, so it is. Yeah, I have to tell have to tell the wife that Greece is off. Um, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's mad. I mean, the the watching the games back as well didn't make me much happier. Um, with Forest Green battering Harrogate in the first half, um, going in at one all, and then Harrogate scoring two goals. Um, kind of against the run of play to win the game. I mean, I don't know what's happened with Forest Green. It, it is a concern, I think, personally, for next season, having thought that Rob Edwards could do no wrong and that they were quite clearly the best team in the division. This poor run of form isn't isolated since they won promotion at all. I think they've been pretty much a mid-table team in terms of their performances for a couple of months now. And given the next season, they're not going to have Kane Wilson. They're not going to have Ebu Adams. They might not have Nicky Cadden. Um... I am concerned for them. The you know the the good side of this is that Edwards has proven himself to be an exciting coach, and that teams who get promoted from League Two generally do pretty well in League One. So even if they aren't a great, the, even if they aren't the great League Two club that we thought they were, they should still be fine next season, um, depending on who they bring in as well. Let um, me put a stat I'm, on the meat of those bones of what you just said since the second of Feb. So that's three months today. They are absolutely a mid-table team in terms of their results. Six wins, six draws, six defeats. 13th best record in the league in that time. As opposed to Exeter, 43 points, 19 more. Um, it seems likely that they'll win the title. Their, their promotion was confirmed in midweek. Um, in the last five seasons, George, Exeter have been way more consistent than you'd expect a League 2 team to be. Um, I think this is a league where it's easy to fluctuate up and down a fair bit between, between uh, seasons. They finished between 5th and ninth in the last five seasons. So always a good League 2 team. Lost in the playoffs three times. But they took a leap this year. They've become an excellent League 2 team. And given that it's a fan-owned club as well, and League 1 loses one of those with Wimbledon being relegated, it gains one in Exeter. A great story, a great club, lovely stuff. Lovely stuff indeed, yeah. And an amazing run of form. I mean, if you if you take Forest Green from the first half of the season and Exeter from the second half of the season, you got the best team ever. Um, it's been... Amazing to see. Uh, you know, they lost Ryan Bowman in the summer. They're their key marksman. Uh, they brought in Sam Nombe, who had such a good start and then was out through injury. Um, Matt Jay's massively stepped up to the plate for them this season, and they are just the epitome of, of a very good side that aren't necessarily any. Well, I mean, obviously um, Jay's goals have been important, but um, but in terms of of their, there's no star necessarily in this in this side. They are just a well-oiled machine. Um, and yeah, and they're fully deserving. You know, I thought maybe given their celebrations um, in the week, they might not be kind of particularly well tuned for for this massive game for Northampton. But they showed how good they were again to come back from one nil down and get an important point to take them top. It's going to be interesting to see who does win it on final day. Both teams are going to be facing Mansfield and Port Vale, who are going to have their biggest game of the season on the day. So it's not going to be simple yet. And you know, maybe it's. Not quite over yet for Forest Green, although Mansfield's home form is so good that you'd anticipate it probably will be. But n- no matter what happens in those games today, it doesn't change the fact that even whether it's for automatic promotion or for playoffs, those games are going to be huge. Extra, probably the most interesting part of their promotion for me is they're actually scored at a lower rate than last season. But it's on the other end of the pitch. It's both defensively in terms of structure, personnel, performances, and then the whole sort of vibe, the personality of the club that's improved massively. And, and Matt Taylor has to take huge credit for that. So much tighter, stronger, sturdier. So many more ones and zeros, as we talk about a lot on the defensive end. First, The first 12 games of the season for Exeter, 
They only won three of 12. They only lost one of 12. They drew eight. So they started off the season just like drawing two-thirds of their games. And that's the old question we always ask. Like, are these more likely to turn into wins than, draw, uh, than losses? Well, it, it, it was wins. Um, can't wait to see them in League One next season. Uh, then the next chunk, well, between third and tenth in League Two. You guys know this already. There's eight teams. There's one auto spot. There's four playoff spots. What we know for sure is that Northampton, who drew with Exeter, are on 77 in third spot as we record with plus 20. What we know for sure is that Bristol Rovers are on 77, having come back from 3-1 down to win 4-3 at Rochdale. Incredible scenes there. They have a, a five-goal inferior goal difference to Northampton, who they're on the same amount of points of. What we do not know is how many points Vale and Mansfield are on by the time you hear this. They start today two points behind those two on 75. Port Vale with a, a 6 uh, goal difference superiority over Mansfield. They could be on 78, they could be on 76, they could be on 75, we don't know. Beneath them we have Swindon in the last spot on 74, uh, Sutton on 73 and Tranmere in 72. Salford also playing today on 69, have a, a tiny chance only if they win today. Uh, for Rovers, I mean, it's incredible, 3-1 uh, down after an hour. There was a moment where the as-it-stands table had them in 8th outside the playoffs and as it stands they go into final day, well... Who knows, but in very, very good nick, currently level with Northampton, who are in that third spot. Sutton's defeat was maybe the most significant result in a way. Um, they, they lost 4-1 to Bradford. Um, once they went behind, they weren't that impressive in trying to come back. That is a concern for them. Um, and, and that opened things up for Swindon, who beat Barrow 2-1. Still not making it easy for themselves, but still playing some really good stuff. And, and with quality individuals like Louis Reed, who scored a brilliant winning goal, um, you know, you have to feel pretty good good about Swindon do you heading into final day can you trust them can you trust them defensively I don't know <laughs> I think that's what Swindon fans are asking themselves and then Tranmere what did they make it 16 home wins out of the 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 22 23 that they've played incredible um might leave themselves a bit too much to do and boy will there be a lot of frustration in the fan base if that's the case but um we, we can't preview the final day now because we don't know what Mansfield and Vale will, will be on points wise just make sure you're across it at, nine, at 3 p.m. rather on Saturday it's going to be mega and with genuine apologies this is probably the shortest League 2 segment we've ever done next week we will make up for it with a proper breakdown of final day and what it all meant George what a pleasure these pods are the ones that we we kind of go all season for right that's that's how mm. I felt throughout and I, and I do feel like this season we're getting maybe more drama than we normally do. Um, and I like the way the fixtures are panning out. Like, oh, great, it's Easter Monday today. About to have four games, well, three EFL games to watch in a row. Incredible. Back-to-back, League Two, League Two Championship. And then I might watch um, former podcast darling uh, Brentford tonight as well. Tuesday night, 7pm, Bournemouth Forest. Wednesday yes. night, have a night off, have a good sleep. Thursday, bang, League One playoffs, Wickham MK. Friday night, Sunderland, Sheffield, Wednesday. Saturday, Championship and League Two final day. Sunday, League One playoff second leg. Monday, League One playoff second leg. It's unbelievable. I'm so glad that we still have the the passion and love for it. And that's quite clear, I think, hopefully, listening to this show. A lot of passion and love will be flowing from the stage into the audience at the Not The Top 20 live show on the 19th of May at 7pm at the Leicester Square Theatre. Jed Wallace is in. Are you? Be good to see you there. Link in bio to buy tickets. Come on. Get involved and go well. We'll talk again soon.